Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 30 Once in a While Forever Chris was buried in the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. Somehow, he managed to score a family-sized crypt in the main mausoleum, which had been sold out for years and was home to the industrial titans Henry J. Kaiser and Warren A. Bechtel, who had collaborated on construction of the Hoover Dam. While I didn't think Chris had built any dams, I was pretty certain that neither industrialist had been buried in drag. As stipulated in his will, the service was open casket. The casual observer would have noted Chris's copper blonde wig styled in a chignon and his smartly tailored Chanel suit with a retro cut. Someone with an eye for the right sort of details might have realized that he looked an awful lot like the photos of Eva Perone lying in state. After the service, there was a wake. That was how I ended up at a table in the back of a nightclub in the Castro with Gretchen, Ray, and Kim while a raucous party featuring 1970s disco music convulsed in the main room. Ray leaned forward to take a sip of his beer, then slouched back into his chair. The black suit he had picked up from Goodwill was too big, and the slouching widened the gap between his shirt and jacket collar and puckered the fabric below the shoulder seams. When I go, he announced, please don't subject me to anything like this. Don't worry, I said. You'll outlive us all. It's more likely you'll be arranging services for me. Besides, teased Gretchen, you'd look good in a Chanel suit. You might want to go with a different wig, though, I suggested. Screw you! Ray grinned, then the smile faded and his face took on a solemn look. I still can't believe she did it. You're talking about this Angelina Bridget person, asked Kim. She killed them all? Although the fuchsia hair was a little jarring, she looked quite elegant in a belted dress with darts at the sides, emphasizing her trim figure. She didn't kill them all, I said. Kittress told me that one of the guns they found matched the slugs recovered from Chris, Corinne White, and Fingerhut. That gun had her prints all over it, so it's a safe bet it was hers. Brendan's gun matched the slugs taken from Mrs. Kongsheng Chai and your friend. Kim pursed her lips and said nothing. Andreas had his own target pistol, and I had assumed at first that he and Brendan had split the killings between them but none of the slugs matched his gun. Angelina and Brendan were the heavy hitters in the family. Gretchen sniffed and dabbed at a tear at the corner of her eye. There had been plenty of crying at the funeral service, but we had promised to treat the wake as the celebration of life Chris wanted. 
Gretchen drew in a deep breath and brought both hands to the table. Okay, I get all of that, but if Angelina was simply after the manuscript, why did she hire Chris? And why make up the story about her missing sister? One was justification for the other, I said. She made up the story about her missing sister, who wasn't her sister at all, as an excuse to hire Chris. The actual reason was to find the manuscript. He didn't know at first that he was looking for the manuscript, but she hoped that if he dug around long enough, he would turn something up. Brendan said Angelina and Jeff had gone rogue, attempting to cut the rest of the family out of the picture and take the manuscript for themselves. My guess is that they somehow intercepted a message from Fingerhut that alerted Brendan to Corinne's discovery of the manuscript during the remodel of her house. No doubt Corinne had taken it to Fingerhut to get it authenticated and appraised. But once Angelina arrived in San Francisco, she proceeded to intimidate and kill the only two people who knew anything about the scroll. She realized Brendan and the rest of the family would be on the trail soon, so she needed help. Then why did she kill Duckworth? asked Ray. We'll never know for sure. If Chris told her he had found the manuscript, he would have become expendable, especially if he also told her he was negotiating to sell it to Brendan. She may have also hoped that Brendan and his family would be arrested for the murder, effectively taking them out of the picture. Maybe Chris was on to her, Gretchen asked. I threw that in her face the night at the grain elevator, and she denied it. But even if Chris had his suspicions, he couldn't have been certain. He didn't mention anything about her in the note he left for us, and he trusted her enough that she was able to creep up on him and shoot him in the back of the head. Gretchen brought her hand up to her throat and sighed. And hiring us was just a continuation of her idea to hire Chris. Sure. She didn't have anywhere else to turn. Only with us, or me at least, she had the added advantage of being able to use her sex appeal. With Chris, it was Jeff who did the seducing. Jeff was also attracted to Angelina, so she was able to subvert his loyalty to Brendan. Kim stirred her drink. I don't know what everyone saw in that emo tart anyway. You need to develop better taste in women. I looked over at her and smiled. I'm working on it. Hey, said Gretchen, we were once a couple too. Yeah, and you left me for a urologist. Urologists make good money, Kim said. I have a question. What happened to this manuscript you keep talking about? The real one. Gretchen, Ray, and I exchanged glances. It had been the topic of considerable debate. We had no idea who it belonged to legally. Corinne White's heirs? She had no close ones. The child she was pregnant with when she left the architecture firm had died during birth, and she divorced her husband. Kerouac's estate? From what we could tell, it was confused and still hotly contested, complicated by, of all things, a forged will. In the end, the overriding consideration was that it was simply better for us if the thing wasn't made public for years, many years. Kittredge and the police had no idea about the scroll, and it had never been mentioned in the press coverage of the case. As far as anyone knew, 
a bunch of crazy Canadians had come to town and wrecked havoc with no clear motive. One of them, a girl whose real name was Bridget, assumed a false identity and claimed kinship with Corinne White for equally nebulous reasons. They had all been murdered just as mysteriously. Apart from being buried in drag and all, Chris's will had another unique feature, I said. He wanted a time capsule, actually just a large safe deposit box he had at a bank, placed in the crypt with his coffin, and he requested that his crypt be opened and the contents of the box revealed 50 years later. So you put it in the box, said Kim. Yep. If Corinne White hadn't remodeled her house when she did, the scroll would have remained hidden for many more years. Putting the scroll in with Chris is the closest we could come to honoring Kerouac's original intentions without getting ourselves in trouble. Not that we can ever know exactly what Kerouac intended when he stashed the manuscript in the house. What else was in the safe deposit box? Gretchen and I didn't look. Why not? I think we were afraid it might have something about... My phone started to ring. I pulled it from my jacket pocket and checked the caller ID. I didn't want to talk to Wong, but I knew eventually I would have to. We were afraid it might have something about us, I continued. I better take this. I stood from the table and walked as far away from the disco music as I could get. Hello, I said tentatively. Is that love roller coaster I hear in the background? Asked Wong. I was surprised he even knew it. Yes, I'm at a wake for my friend. Certainly a change from Danny Boy. Refreshing, isn't it? I called because I've reached the conclusion you misled me, Reardon. You used me to accomplish your own agenda. I thought we had the same agenda, only to an extent. I do not like being used. In fact, I hate it. I am sorely tempted to retaliate. Do you know why I haven't? I leaned against the paneled wall of the room. Is it the letter I gave to my lawyer to forward to the police if anything happens to me? I had toyed with the idea of taking it further, ratting him out to Kittredge, confident I could spin a version of the story that kept me from being implicated. The line was silent for a long moment. You are not nearly as clever as you think. The reason I haven't retaliated is I feel confident this Canadian sex family, as the papers have dubbed them, is responsible for nearly all the violence against me. The murder weapons were recovered as you promised. I received further collaboration from employees who recognized several of them from their visit to Golden Fingers the night your friend Duckworth was killed. I even discovered a hidden room in the basement that would help explain their presence. Were you aware of the room? Possibly, but if I was, I learned about it by following a lead you suggested. Mrs. Kongsheng Chai's son. I let that one drift with the breeze. Since he wouldn't have talked to me directly... Perhaps you owe him confidentiality. But there are other things that don't add up. When I first met with you, you said that you were working for a client, 
the same client who had hired Duckworth, and that this client had been kidnapped. Now I find this client was actually part of the family. I didn't know that when we met. She had me fooled, just as she had fooled Duckworth. But to what end? I have the definite sense that a piece of the story is missing, some underlying motive that drove all their behavior. It's almost as if my business was collateral damage. I don't know why you would say that. One very good reason is what Uncle Ewan told me about the night of the raid on the encampment. He doesn't know enough English to understand what you said to her, but he told me that you stopped this so-called client from escaping, that you took a toolbox she was carrying. What was in that box? I knew this was coming, and I was ready. Sex toys. You're kidding. I wish I were. I had hoped it was money or something valuable. It wasn't. It was just a bunch of strap-ons. I dumped them in the bay as soon as I could. Look, I admit I had the same idea as you, that there was something valuable that they were after. But I didn't make a damn thing off this case. I only lost a good friend. You can do a forensic audit of my finances and have me followed around for the next five years to see if I come into any unexplained wealth, but you won't find anything. If they were after something, I don't know what it was. Wong let out a heavy sigh. All right, Reardon. Just know this. I will be watching you. If I were you, I'd steer clear of Chinatown and my businesses. And if I were you, Wong, I'd stop threatening the man who can implicate you in six murders. I was talking to a deadline. He'd hung up well before I finished. I put the phone away and looked up to find Kim smirking at me. If you are done talking shit to the head of Wohop Toe, I'd like to dance. She took hold of my wrist. To this? I pointed vaguely in the direction of the main room. Boogie, oogie, oogie? You think you're too cool to boogie? She asked, quoting a line from the song. The tune was more apt than she knew. Boogie, oogie, oogie was the only disco number that Chris and I used to perform when we played together at clubs. Composed by Taste of Honey lead singer and bassist Janice Marie Johnson, it featured an elaborate and much-sampled bass line that gave me a chance to shine on electric bass, and just as importantly, provided Chris the opportunity to boogie around the stage in slinky costumes, as Johnson did, when he sang the tune. We had to partner to recreate Johnson's chart-topping performance, just as we had partnered one final time to avenge his death. I'm not too cool at all, I said to Kim, who pulled me towards the pulsing beat. I waved for Gretchen and Ray to join us, and soon we were all up on the floor, boogieing as Chris used to do. Hi, this is Mark again. I hope you enjoyed the Deadbeat Scroll. If you did, 
and you'd like to encourage me to podcast other Reardon novels, why not give the book a five-star review on Goodreads, Amazon, and or the podcasting platform you use to listen to it. I've included links in the episode description to make that easier. I've also included a link to a performance of Boogie Oogie Oogie by Taste of Honey, so you can see lead singer and bassist Janice Marie Johnson in action. But wait, there's more. I thought a nice way to wrap up my reading of the novel would be to provide a companion episode with an interview done by Randall Brandt, covering some background on the Deadbeat Scroll, other books in the series, and August Reardon as a character. Stay tuned to the Reardon's Desk podcast to hear it next. I'd like to close by saying that the Deadbeat Scroll is dedicated to my late wife, Linda Joe, who passed away before the book reached publication. Learn more about Linda by reading my tribute to her, which is available at the final link I've provided in the podcast description. Thank you. You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.